Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on our Army's doctrine and vision of warfare. So, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and I need you to do me a favor. Picture this. You're going to NTC, and you're looking for a particular ATP or a field manual about how to combine arms. And this is where it gets interesting, because it's like Schrodinger's manual of, of that. It's really, it does and does not exist. Our combat training centers provide a controlled environment to replicate the rigor of combat in a complex operational environment against an adaptive enemy, without the messiness of actually going to war. But how do we combine arms? More importantly, how do we combine arms at an echelon below the division level, specifically the brigades and the battalions? Even without the persistent attention of a black horse or a Geronimo, the opposing forces that we see at our combat training centers, the friction of simply moving a formation from a training center is enough to highlight the crucial necessity of planning, sustainment, and maintenance. It also highlights just how crucial our command and control systems are. Combining arms is not easy. It's an art that has changed over the course of centuries. And we've had to learn these lessons in combat operations, with experimentation during modernization, and of course, training. And that's before the fight even starts. When you think about including artillery, aviation, engineers, it gets infinitely trickier. So where do I even begin with this? Well, it helps to have friends that have been with the Army for quite some time, and friends that I've been close to for about a decade now, ones that work at the National Training Center out in Fort Irwin, California. Friends like Lieutenant Colonel Adam Latham, who's currently the Bronco 7 at NTC, but has spent time not only as a squadron commander and armor officer throughout his entire career, but more importantly, as Bronco 7, has a unique perspective on how brigades are doing at this effort of combining arms. The two of us are going to wrestle with our shared experiences in defining combat arms or combined arms, discussing NTC, and offer some insights into how the Army should do this and why this is a desirable trait for Army forces at tactical echelons. In order for us to actually genuinely synchronize and simultaneously apply combat power, we kind of have to know how to do it. So, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Nikki, thank you so much for having me. I'm wicked excited to be here. So, I'm going to make you a deal. You need to unpack what NTC is and why it exists, but I'm going to also, because what we've found is if we don't provide a common framework and language for everybody to understand, uh, sometimes, well, nobody knows what we're talking about. Because this is the Army, and we love acronyms. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, if I could talk a little bit about the National Training Center. Um, so the National Training Center, as we, as we know it, uh, was an output of the, the Starry Report coming out of the Yom Kippur War, uh, where the, you know, what the Army saw um, as we were transitioning out of Vietnam is a lot, the introduction of a lot of new weapons. Uh, we were introducing our own weapons with the, the Big Five, and we needed a place to, go, uh, to be able to go and train. Uh, and what they found was they had, you know, what, what they had used for, uh, for about 50 years prior uh, was like a missile defense range in the middle of the Mojave. Um, and so they settled on about a thousand square, uh, square mile uh, piece of terrain about the size of the state of Connecticut. Um, and they, you know, that's where, you know, they kind of picked Fort Irwin and they built it from there. 
Um, and starting in 1982, what you started seeing is you, you know, we started with, you know, battalion level uh, training operations uh, in the desert with a lot of, you know, some of our newer systems as they were emerging, things like the Abrams tank and the Apache helicopter. Um, and then we sort of grew and matured over the course of, of the 80s uh, into training brigades, uh, really starting around 1987-ish. Uh, we started bring, bringing brigades out uh, and actually executing training operation at the brigade level. Uh, and what we have today at the National Training Center, it's really the only place in the Army, um, the largest training se uh, center we have, and the only place in the Army we can put all of the things that a brigade combat team uh, can bring to bear into the desert all at once um, and actually be able to train um, utilizing all of their systems over a wide breadth and depth of terrain. Um, what we're starting to see now is we're even bringing in division staffs, something that we haven't done in quite some time, where division staffs are able to provide the command and control um, for their brigades as they're in the box, executing a blended exercise uh, with, you know, both the live brigade and then, you know, the, uh, the, some virtual constructive brigades and having to work through that all at once. It's a wicked exciting place and I'm super happy to be there. You know, it's kind of funny that you bring that up because I was doing some background digging in preparation for this podcast, and it's, it, we've been kind of working on this for quite some time, and looked into the history of NTC itself, of, of the Mojave Training Centers, and also, more importantly, like, where did the idea of doing operations or training in the desert come from? So, fun fact, as all things do, it comes back to General Patton, of course. And he gives this speech to his soldiers, and it kind of reflects this idea of training for war in austere desert environments. And I, I have to share this with you. The war in Europe is over for us. England will probably fall this year. Our first chance to get at the enemy will be in North Africa. We cannot train troops to fight in the desert of North Africa by training in the swamps of Georgia. I sent a report to Washington requesting a desert training center in California. The California desert can kill quicker than the enemy. We will lose a lot of men from heat, but the training will save hundreds of lives when we get into combat. I want every officer and every section to start planning on moving all our troops by rail to California. I thought the idea that this has always been a place where we do this type of training in a wide, huge expanse, and that started with an armor officer saying, hey, if we want to do combined arms training, we probably need a place big enough to do it. That's absolutely fair. I will tell you one of my favorite quotes uh, from Lead 7, uh, Command Sergeant Major Haight. He has two things. One, we always give a safety brief when we start the rotation, and it's the whole, like, don't touch the wild animals. And my favorite quote from him is, hey, if it lives in the desert, it's harder than you are. Don't mess with it. Um, and then the other one is, you know, a quote that he'll say often, which is, there's nothing easy in the Mojave. Uh, and that's that's a fact, you know, as you start seeing units, particularly in the summer, as they start working through operations, you know, the Mojave is unforgiving, you know, ice and water, you know, and the movement of those that, you know, that class one commodity becomes commander's business. They have to get really, really focused on what that effect is on their operational reach. You know, hey, if I, I if I, I, I might not be able to kick those dismounts out. Uh, simply because, you know, I, I don't have enough water, I don't have the cap capacity to get water to them uh, over time and over that distance. Um, the, the Mojave is an absolutely magical place. Some of the, the, the prettiest sunrises and sunsets that you'll ever see. Uh, but what I will offer to you is it, it can be really hard. Um, and it, it, it absolutely provides enough space where you can bring all of those different capabilities to bear 
um, without having to worry about you know all oh, the, the you know the next door highway or that range over there. It's big enough, um, and it it provides that opportunity for really brigades to go out, stretch their legs. Uh, and do what they do best. Well, and it's not just brigades going on stretching their legs. A lot of times this is the first that we'll see interaction between aviation and ground forces. Sometimes it's the first that we'll see the application of, of joint assets, especially coming out of the different green flag events that support CTC rotation. So it's, it is a place where a brigade, all leaders within a brigade can learn to do combined arms, the stuff that they read about in manuals, but more importantly, it's it's an opportunity to see this live. Yeah, absolutely. The mandate that Lead Six gives us, so General Taylor will always tell us, our job uh, is to make sure our soldiers can win the first fight of the next war. Um, and to do that, they have to have the capacity to be able to bring in all of these uh, disparate assets, things like A-10s, things like you know, EAB, you know, information collection assets, you know, bring them out and use them, you know, in a synchronized manner, uh, which ties directly into what we're talking about today in terms of how we do that, because it's really easy to say, maybe not so easy to do. Ah, so here is where, here's where you, the training side, and I, the doctrine side, get a chance to, to kind of debate it out. More importantly, I think it kind of helps if we start with a good understanding of what combined arms is per doctrine. I don't know if it's so much of a debate as we're really just bringing Voltron together. That is true. If one brings Voltron together, is it combined arms or is it convergence? Uh, It's absolutely combined arms. (laughs) So what is combined arms? That's a great question I think a lot of people have, which it really comes from ADP 3.0. So combined arms is the synchronized and simultaneous action application of arms to achieve a greater effect that, than if each element was used separately or sequentially. I'm literally pulling that straight out of the book, by the way. When you think about it this way, combined arms integrates leadership information and each of what we know right now is the warfighting functions and the joint capabilities through this idea of mission command. So when you're thinking about combined arms, it is not necessarily, I use one thing, then use another, or I use one particular formation in one way, and then I apply something else at a later point in the battle. We're talking about actually synchronizing and having some sort of simultaneously greater effect. This gets after this idea or this principle of mass. So. How long has this concept existed in Army Doctrine? Well, it's always been there, and it's never not existed. Its codification in modern doctrine has kind of been present throughout the 20th century, though, and it's really began with the Army's field service regulations. By, like, 1905, we start to see the emergence of mobile com- uh, a mobile arm concept, right? This idea of increased emphasis on the use of combining disparate armors together, in which most of the authors for those believe that success in modern war may be achieved only by all branches and arms mutually helping and supporting one another in this common effort to achieve a desired end. And this comes, most importantly, from understanding the capabilities of infantry, artillery, cavalry. At the time it was signal, the engineers, all of it, they knew to be incredibly vital. And if you think in 1905, this is where we also begin the adaptation and the application of new technology, things like airplanes being used for reconnaissance or observation and fires. So fast forward to like the 1940s, we start to see the use of 
combined arms and that discussion in doctrine applied to the proving grounds of how we manipulate formations based on terrain, climate, enemy situation. And we begin to see it applied at places like the Mojave Desert. So fast forward again, after we had completed World War II and then began into basically rectifying how we experienced the 1960s, 70s, 80s, the Cold War era, did combined arms change? And fun fact, it didn't. What we begin to do is we see this focus on branch-specific technology, but the language of combined arms, of tactically combining arms and the application of training still remains the way that we discuss ground maneuver. We're still using the same language pretty much today. So it doesn't matter what you saw in today's current definition in ADP 3.0, in 2019 still reflects what we said in FM 3.0 in 2001, all the way back to 1905 in the FSRs. Combined arms and this idea of achieving something greater has always been talked about. Now the question is, how are we doing it today? And how are we seeing it used at the tactical level? Which is exactly the reason why I brought my friend here to talk about it today. So what do we see in, when we're talking about trends in NTC, obviously we're not gonna talk about specific units or specific experiences that have had, but there is overarching trends when it comes to combined arms. So what do we see units struggling with when it comes to getting in the door of the desert and then actually attempting to rectify planning processes to get after a better synchronized or simultaneous effort so, so I think it's valuable to, to, to kind of talk about, you know, how we teach combining arms first. Um, and that's, you know, really, I, I kind of want to talk about how we built the house. Um, so and this is a great story. Um, so the, the former COG, um, you know, uh, Colonel Shal- Chad Shalfont sat down all the 07s. And we were having this struggle. We talked an awful lot about units are struggling to combine arms. We're struggling to combine arms. We don't know how to do that. Um, and so we sat us all down. And I remember we were sitting in the um, in his conference room in uh, in 990, um, and he said, "Okay, I, I want to do an exercise. I want you to describe how to combine arms without falling in a, into a tautological argument." So, whoa, 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 tautological. Right. So tautology is when you use the same term to describe, you know, or to define the term that you're tr- attempting to define. I actually learned what it meant that day. I had to look it up on my phone. Um, and so to, to that point, what we ended up doing is we, you know, we sat down and, you know, we, what amounted to, you know, 11 different, you know, post-command O5 sitting around wrestling with this idea about how do I define combining arms without defining the arms that I'm trying to combine or, you know, without essentially just saying I take the arms and I therefore then combine them. Um, and that is way harder to do. Uh, than you think. Uh, and we ended up spending about 45 minutes on this. And so he introduced us to this idea, like what if we used the thought exercise of building a house? Um, and so as we, lay, you know, as we lay out this idea of a house, fun fact, if you build the roof first, the house probably isn't gonna work out so well. Um, and so we start with a foundation. Uh, and so the foundation to the house is the unit's understanding of time, it's the, you know, the language of commanders, intent, guidance, triggers, decisions, and risk. 
Um, and then, you know, cultivating rehearsals uh, to help sharing that understanding, particularly of time. Uh, what we see units struggle with as they, you know, as they work through the National Training Center, particularly early, you know, units will get better as they go. Um, but what we, what we struggle with is how we develop synchronization. Um, fun fact, I also realized it's not synchronicity. That, that is a police album from 1986. Um, you can ask me some other time about how I figured that out. The, uh, but so we start with this idea of a foundation. Um, and then uh, we go into, uh, we build a frame, just like you lay the foundation, then you frame the house. The frame is the fire support system. And as we lay this all out, we've got 18 critical TTPs uh, that, each, that tie into each of the, these aspects that I'm laying out. And so for the fire support system, you know, we break that down into target acquisition. So we have to find what we're shooting at first and then attack and delivery. Uh, and so for target acquisition, hey, can we solve the target location error? Uh, we see a lot of units that struggle uh, with this idea of, you know, how do we, you know, we make sure the round that is leaving the tube is going to impact where I want it with the effect that I want. Um, and so, you know, and, and that, you know, that ties to, hey, have we executed a technical rehearsal? Uh, that ties to, hey, do we have a, you know, a clear observer pro, uh, plan? And that does that tie, that ties to, hey, can that observer talk? And do we have the system in place, the process, to make it from the observer to the aphateds and then from that aphateds to the guns that then launch the round um, and then you know we can go ahead and assess how effective we're doing at that um, for attack and delivery we talk an awful lot you know again we you know tactical and fire support rehearsals ammunition management you know is the stuff that i need to shoot at the guns at the right time that tie you know again remember the foundation is our understanding of time you know, how much time does that take and what, you know, how do I need to do it? Um, and then, you know, from a C2 perspective, you know, has the commander delineated what the essential fire support task is? And this is, this is clutch, right? Like, we have this idea that fires can do all of the things. And I mean, truth in lending, as a former squadron commander, I wanted fires to do all the things. Um, I had mass ideas of what I was going to do with you know, artillery tubes that did not belong to me at all. Um, you know, what is the one, two at most things that fires needs to accomplish in a given phase or battle period? What are the two things? You know, hey, if I'm going into a combined arms breach, that may be suppression and obscuration, right? Those are the only two things that fires are, you know, are really going to do. Can they do other things? Sure. But those are the two essential tasks that they need to get after. And then we talk about, you know, hey, permissive battle space architecture. You know, this includes the airplane in three dimensions. Fun fact, you know, I, I've never been a pilot, but I'd be willing to bet a pilot gets really, really squirrely when an artillery round goes anywhere near their cockpit, right? Maybe just as much. Fair enough. Okay, so, you know, hey, have I set those conditions so I can mask those? Because I want, I want attack aviation. I mean, that's awesome. It's one of our biggest killers on the battlefield. I've got to make sure that I can bring that in and still shoot what I want to shoot. So have I set that architecture right so I can do it? Um, and then have I set conditions, again, for rapid and, and effective mission processing, right? And that ties back to, hey, can I talk? 
Hey, that ties back to, hey, you know, when that information comes into a command post, be it at the brigade or the fires battalion level, do we have systems in place where that gets effectively processed and passed to the guns um, in a timely manner? Uh, so that's the frame, right? And that's generally, you know, kind of what we cover next. And then we talk about the roof. Uh, and the roof is tempo, suppression, and maneuver. Um, you know, and this is the part that everybody's fairly comfortable with and, and seems to really want to talk about when they come to the National Training Center. How are my tanks and brads? How are my strikers doing? How are my infantry doing? How do we do that? You know, do we have appropriate movement techniques? Have we delineated that for our formations? Um, you know, direct fire control measures. Uh, and this is something we see a lot of, you know, how do you do direct fire control at the brigade level? You know, what does that look like? What does that mean that I need to do? Have I delineated where I want engagement areas in a defense? Uh, have I delineated, you know, where my restricted fire lines are? You know, who owns what objective and how am I controlling those things? Um, and then, you know, uh, all the different methods that go into that, like, hey, you know, uh, TRPs, et cetera, do we, have those, have, do we have those established and are they understood at Echelon and have we rehearsed them? Are they part of our rehearsals? Everything ties back into that idea of a foundation. And so, so we've built the roof, right? So we have a frame, a foundation, and a roof. Um, but just like you wouldn't want to go to the bathroom in a house that didn't have internal plumbing, you know, you need a plumbing system in your house and that's your sustainment, right? You know, for the, you know, for your battalion field trains, are they co-located with the BSA? We see a lot of units that have, you know, some, some maybe not so doctrinal concepts of where those field trains go. Well, they're, they're my field. It's my, it's my forward support company that that's going to go where I tell it. Well, great. But who is back at the BSA who's configuring loads for you, right? Because this all ties into this idea of combining arms. You can't have a conversation about combining arms without sustainment, right? You know, you can't back out of that BP if you're out of gas. So, you know, who's configuring those loads? Who's moving that, those class nine repair parts for you? Who's making sure you have what you need? You know, for the battalion combat trains, you know, hey, are they forward? Are they agile? Can they move your SSL? Can they move, you know, the stuff that you have there? Can they get what needs to go where? You know, we talk a lot about log pack. You know, and, and it's, it's disingenuous of me to, you know, uh, I, I don't want this to become pejorative, like, oh, units, you know, mess this up because they're terrible people. No, that's not the case. You know, NTC stresses your logistics more than any other home station probably on the planet, right? Like, you, you, you don't get the depth, uh, you know, the distance um, that NTC forces on, on brigades as they come through. Hey, do you have good log pack procedures? You know, is it synchronized with your plan? Because, hey, super, we're moving class five. Rock on, that's great. You know, but hey, if that class five shows up and the enemy is already committed into my engagement area, well, that's a bummer, right? Like, that's just a little too late. You know, hey, have we synchronized that with what we think, you know, what we know is going on? And then are we communicating, you know, and updating, you know, that logistics running estimate by virtue of a log stat? What's our process to do that? Uh, and then finally, you know, again, I wouldn't want to live in a house without powered lights. That sounds like a terrible idea, right? So, hey, the C2 system is the electrical system for our house. Hey, do we have a four-channel pace, right? So and when I say four-channel, 
right? You know, so you have primary, alternate, contingent, and emergent means of communicating. But we also talk about how we, we categorize the communication that we, you know, we want to transmit. Hey, do we have a primary, alternate, contingent, and emergent means for command? And what goes in there, right? Do we have the same thing for O&I and A&L and fires? Are we able to communicate across all the length and depth of this pace? Do we have that capacity? And, and you know, it's, it's interesting as a, as a general note, you know, the average um, about a year ago for chat windows that we saw, you know, at the battalion level for people to have open on their JBCP was 17, right? I have a 16-year-old daughter. She can't manage 17 chats simultaneously. I don't know anybody who can. And so what you had is you had information that was getting stovepiped in that system. There's nothing wrong with, it, with using your JBCP somewhere on your pace. But you have to inject rigor into, hey, no kidding, in that JBCP, you know, what chat does that information go into, right? Otherwise, it's, ju it's just getting lost. Right? Who has access to that chat? Who am I inviting? And then who's maintaining it? If that's going to be part of your pace, and many units do, and it works out great for them, right? But someone has to be the, you know, the maintainer of that chat window. Hey, if somebody gets kicked out, you invite them back in. Somebody is making sure that they are using that to update their running estimate. Uh, we talk about wargaming and fighting products. So this, you know, one of the things that we see units struggle with as they come through, everybody, you know, everybody conflates this idea of a war game. It's like, you know, just like I went when I went through ILE, it's 18 hours of the worst part of ILE where I'm just getting my browbeat. I see the look on your face. I get it. You know, um, but like that is a thing. You know, all a war game <laughs> is is you're gathering all of your best friends around a table and you're solving problems. That's it. That's all it is. You've got your running estimates. You have, you know, you're speaking for your specific warfighting function, and then you, you know, you're updating those running estimates as you go. And the output of that war game is the synchronizing of efforts for all of the warfighting functions. You have a, you know, whatever your synchronizing measure is, be it, you know, your sync mat, X check, however your unit chooses to do that. Um, and there's different TTPs that go into to all of it, but you you have that tool along with a decision, you know, probably a decision support matrix. Hey, where and when do we think commanders are going to make decisions as, a, as part of a decision support template? And then, hey, what are the conditions that would drive that decision if and then, right? And then are we taking those products and are people using them, right? You know, I mean, your DSM is only as good as the co-op's battle captain who's staring at it to see where the conditions are in time and space. Well, and so you talked about the foundation of a house being time, right? And I thought, to me, that spoke volumes, partly because time is one of those things that we never have enough of on staffs, right? So this, this idea of how do you combine arms, but first of all, to do that, it requires a very detailed and very good understanding of time. The way that we develop that is through the planning products, through sync matrices, through those or those tools that we can use to share that perspective of time. But along with it, like I, I gotta say, the point at which we make sure all the time fits together is a combined arms rehearsal. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, and again, that's, that ties into this idea of a foundation. Um, th there is nothing more important that a unit's going to do than sharing visualization as part of that rehearsal, right? And, and so what we, unit some, we see units sometimes struggle with is how they do that, 
Um, and what I'd offer is we've seen successful units adopt the TTP of whatever the synchronizing device that comes out of the war game that everybody has said, yes, that, that seems to work, right? That synchronizes all of your warfighting functions, right? Use that as your script for the combined arms rehearsal. And then to that end, you know, hey, if you're gonna rehearse and you're not gonna rehearse combined arms, again, you know, typically your first combined arms rehearsal, everybody gets really, really wedded to let's talk about movement maneuver. And don't get me wrong, I'm an armor officer. It's like my favorite thing ever right is maneuvering tanks that sounds rad but like the the problem that you have is if you if, if you don't start letting your other warfighting functions speak their piece you're not one you're not sharing true visualization not the holistic picture of visualization for all the warfighting functions you're also you know you you are you're not going to combine arms if you don't rehearse combining arms you can't be surprised when you don't Right. And so, you know, the, 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 the piece that I would offer folks is, you know, successful units that we see at the National Training Center, you know, and it, it's again, there's a spectrum and everybody, you know, starts kind of, kind of cultivating this as they go through. Um, they have a process by which they validate their synchronizing device, you know, as they go through their combined arms rehearsal and they have, you know, that mechanism in place, that process. Uh, so all of the various warfighting functions can kind of sync their piece. Now, admittedly, hey, there's a separate IC fires rehearsal that you know talks about you know that that specific aspect, and that's important, right? As a separate event, right? There's a separate sustainment rehearsal that's very important to talk about a lot of that minute detail. It's really easy for the car to go ahead and blow up into this absolute juggernaut of an event. And like you said, hey, time is a finite resource. We don't have an overabundance of it, right? There's a lot of different distracting events. And that's why we have to get good at cultivating that process. Who talks in the combined arms rehearsal? What do they say? Is it a rebrief of the order? One would hope not, but we see that sometimes, right? Where staffs start running away with it. Like, let me tell you all of the wonderful things that I've done. Great, but we actually need to rehearse the combining of arms. Right. And you don't do that until you have folks on the terrain model. Some of the best cars that I've seen, you know, when it comes to sharing visualization, you know, we, you know, troop company battery commanders show up. And that's hard, especially as you go through the rotation. Usually you'll see that, you know, during RSOI at the first combined arms rehearsal. But that is the best way to share visualization two levels down where they get on the terrain board. The other thing I'd offer to the car as, as a you know, battalion squadron or brigade commander, you can't be a spectator at your combined arms rehearsal. You've got to be the talking person, right? You've got to understand what, you know, what your intent is. You, you know, it, it's yours, right? You can't just sit there and let your S3 run away with it. You need to understand you know, where you are in time and space. And then ideally, if you can put your, again, troop company battery commanders on the board simultaneously, you can share that visualization with them simultaneously and everybody sees it. Uh, but you know, a lot of times as we progress, again, everybody's busy and the fight doesn't stop, right? There is still enemy contact happening even though you wanna do a combined arms rehearsal on training day four. Right. So sometimes bringing those, you know, some of those those captains back for that rehearsal is just not tenable. Um, but when you can, if you can, 
what an awesome opportunity. And I, I think that, that that's important. You know, you can't combine arms if you don't rehearse it. So what about, you mentioned before the idea of the sustainment rehearsal and the fire support rehearsal. And we have discussed this, you and I have discussed it previously about, you know, what is the best or what have you seen work well? But more importantly, like, first of all, hey, there is doctrine that covers those things. So that way an individual can understand what they bring to those events. But if you... You know, is it work well to do them before? Does it work well to do them after? You're right. We can't stuff all of the things into the car, the combined arms rehearsal, because it would just be, it 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 would basically take over all of the training days. Yeah, it's one of those like, hey, grab a Snickers, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. So you know, to to answer your question, you know, to be blatantly honest, I've seen it work both ways. And and different leaders have their own proclivities about, hey, I want to do IC fires and sustainment first. You know, set the, the table with them and then go into the combined arms rehearsal. Vice versa, I've seen commanders who, hey, I want to do the combined arms rehearsal first. And then, you know, we we go ahead and, and cover, you know, what, you know, what shaping needs to be done. You know, how do I need to set the table for IC fires? You know, make sure my observer plan is tight. Make sure my airspace plan is tight, you know, and same, same. Okay, hey, we've done this, you know, we've, we've synch- you know, synchronized or rehearsed the synchronization of this magical plan. Now I need to make sure the sustainment works. I, you know, I, I, I honestly, I, I, I think a lot of that depends on the commander. I think, you know, from, from my perspective, you just need to do them. You know, whether you do them first or second is, is largely immaterial, but they need to get done and they need to make sure that they're nested um, you know, with that overall, overall synchronizing device. So here are some questions that I had. And to kind of bring it back around, once you've rehearsed, now there actually comes the, the process of legitimately doing everything that you've read in doctrine, everything you've planned for. You actually need to put organizations or units onto the battlefield and combine arms. I've heard a quote that said, the only justification for air power in the cast fight is to further the ground scheme of maneuver. How are we doing at training and capturing the complexities for joint assets as part of the combined arms live fire for brigades and for their actual battle periods? There's doctrine that discusses it, but how well are we reflecting that at Dragon Live Fire and when we do things like the combined arms breach? I'm super glad you asked. Right, here's what I'll tell you is one of the, the magical things about the National Training Center is our ability to bring some of those assets into play. And I'll give you a great example. So we have the Raven team. Um, these are Air Force officers um, who are on the ground uh, programmed to train the TACP and JTACs that get attached to a brigade as they come through. Um, and they will bring in, they'll coordinate and bring in live A-10s. Just this last rotation, uh, we had live A-10s dropping ordnance during the live fire. Um, and it had to get synchronized with the overall, you know, ground event. Uh, you know, going back to, I think, the root of your question, you know, how, how are we doing at it? Well, it's, it's like, you know, any resource as we start, you know, branching into, you know, all sorts of different effects that a brigade can bring to bear. You know, if we do a good war game and if those those resources are reflected as part of the war game and then integrated into the synchronizing device, uh, then we do better, you know, when we uh, go ahead and bring them into the actual fight. You know, same as when we, we start rehearsing, 
right? I did just say samesies, didn't I? That's embarrassing. Uh, my, my daughter's going to be so proud of me. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, but what, what I would offer is, you know, hey, if, if we don't rehearse it, then we, you know, we can't be surprised when, you know, we don't have that synchronization straight. And so, hey, part of that combined arms rehearsal, does that TAC peer, does that senior JTAC have a seat at the table? Is he on the board talking about what effect we want with those A-10s? What are they, you know, what are they doing? Who's looking for the thing for them? You know, and then how are we bringing those assets on and what does that synchronization look like? I'd be remiss if I told you, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody's like, well, great, you know, you rehearsed this plan, but no good plan survives LD. Um, what I would offer is, you know, Latham's opinion on the matter. It is way easier to resynchronize a plan that you've already synchronized than try to make it up on the fly, right? And so if you've done a good job up front, you know, starting at the war game, bringing all of those assets to bear, um, and then, you know, going ahead and, you know, working through, you know, what Doctrine calls RDSP, right? And, and you know, work resynchronizing as things go sideways. Hey, they missed an LRP. Hey, they're running short on gas. They've been attack idle all night. Hey, you know, the, we thought the Kofans were going to be this. We saw a lot more enemy. We're running a little dry on class five, you know, or, hey, we thought there was going to be enemy there. Everybody thinks, you know, we're really good at catastrophizing, right? So like everybody thinks like, oh, RDSP only when the, the plan goes sideways. Well, what happens if there's an opportunity? You know, and my favorite example is, hey, listen, you know, we've moved the cavalry squadron through the whale gap. You know, we had anticipated getting in, the, in a fight on the, in the John Wayne foothills, right? There's no enemy there. We have negative enemy contact, you know, and it's the difference of like, well, I guess I'll sit here and wait for the enemy to show up or giddy up. Let's seize that opportunity. You know, a great historical example of that, you know, we, we talk about the Battle of 73 Easting. You know, that was the, the acknowledgement, the recognition of an opportunity, and then the decision to seize that opportunity, right? We see that play out at times at the National Training Center. And again, driving a staff to go ahead, look at their synchronizing device, you know, having a process to gather the staff around. Do we have logistics tail to seize that opportunity? You know, do we have the, uh, you know, the fire's capacity or I'm out outrunning my guns, right? making an informed decision vice, you know, a little too much yee in their ha and just going for it or sit, sitting and waiting because these weren't the conditions that I thought I was going to see and I start going in and do a little bit of vapor lock over it. Well, and I think one of the, the most key parts of genuinely combining arms is first of all a staff that is extremely well resourced that understands what its specific or niche functions are and then also to a certain extent there's a benefit from an individual who maybe you work on a in a brigade aviation element understanding how your your roles your functions and your tasks impact the fires community have a benefit towards information collection, understanding how aviation may or may not be driven by certain sustainment requirements. That that is also part of combined arms. It's not just bringing your own niche thing. It's understanding how your niche thing impacts everybody else's niches. That's a lot of niche. Yeah, it is. I love niche. It's my favorite. But there, there's a great point there, you know, in terms of as we start looking at what what is our process to do some of these rehearsals and who shows up. 
So, you know, like the IC fires. Hey, does the brigade aviation element have a seat in the IC fires? Well, why would they, right? Like, well, I mean, they're in the car. Well, listen, you know, again, we go back to this idea. I'm pretty sure pilots don't like artillery rounds traveling too close to their cockpit. You know, what does that airspace plan look like? And when am I validating that airspace plan against the rest of the synchronization, you know, uh, of my plan? What does that look like? Um, you know, when do I do that? Uh, and that's important, you know, and, and to your point about well-resourced, you know, I would offer that, you know, you, it's, it would be disingenuous again, if, you know, like, well, Hey, you know, you don't, your, your BAO is double dual hatted as the chops. I mean, you know, Hey, that's a commander's decision. That's, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, sometimes that, you know, we don't have all the people, you know, that we necessarily want. I don't think there's a staff in the world that has all the people that they probably want or that can reflect this. But it's understanding, you know, through by virtue of, you know, discussion, you know, codifying in an SOP and then rehearsing, going through the process, right, to know that, hey, listen, I, I may be the brigade engineer, but my you know, I have a responsibility over here as well. I can't just be worried about engineer things. I'm also worried about protection things, and that's going to be my responsibility. And I've practiced that a couple times. Yeah, it's we always focus because the the one thing, the combined arms breach, right? Like because it has the words combined arms in it. But there are so many other so many other operations on the battlefield that a tactical organization can do that reflect how crucial it is for a staff to understand their capabilities, for an organization to understand the complexity of what it means to bring all this, all the functions together. What else are we seeing at NTC that is driving units to learn or to execute combined arms? I'm thinking like joint forcible entries and those kinds of events that we're starting to see really stretch an organization's skills and talents at doing combined arms sure you know so we, we have the ability to you know to bring brigades through a couple of different breaches as they show up I mean there's a breach to get into Rizish um, there's also the urban aspect of the attack into Rizish um, you know I, I think there's this um, perhaps a misconception that you know well I'm gonna go in Rizish and it's gonna be a series of battle drill sixes and it's solely an infantry fight um, and I, I think that that would probably be a, a little misguided. Um, you know, you absolutely can have a, you know, this bringing tanks and brads and all sorts of other assets to bear, you know, into the city um, to, to have that effect. You, can you shoot artillery into resist? You absolutely can. You know, if you've gone through the process of, you know, hey, I've, I've limited collateral damage to the, the best of my ability. I have a, you know, distinct military requirement that needs to get it, you know, or a, a, some sort of effect that must be achieved. Yeah, I, I would argue to you, you shouldn't fight Razish without, you know, combining some of these arms. You know, I think another example we see is, you know, units going through an air assault. Um, you know, how do we work through that planning process? And then how do I layer those effects to make sure that you know I'm not finding an enemy ADA asset in the absolute worst way possible, um, you know that's important and that's that stresses brigades as they come through to start working through those processes, synchronizing those assets, um, which then drives their ability to come you know combine arms where they need it. So I know JRTC right now uh, down in Fort Polk is working through how does it train airborne operations. 
that's always been their niche element. But along with it, this idea of combined arms for them has been focused on joint forcible entry sure. now into some more remote places, things like replicating islands in maritime dominant environments, um, austere airfields, those kinds of things that I think that drives a better discussion overall of, of how do we bring how do we bring assets and synchronize and execute simultaneously to ensure survivability. Sure. I think you'll find that NTC and JRTC are pretty well shoulder to shoulder in terms of how, you know, how we handle those things. I mean, I, I talk to my counterpart at JRTC once a month. Um, and a lot of it is just, hey, what are you seeing? What am I seeing? How are you solving it? Or what, how are you coaching? And then vice versa. You know, as you start looking at things like JFE or you start looking at, you know, ex execution of, you know, an island hopping campaign, you know, bringing in the maritime domain, um, you know, admittedly, hey, we, we don't have a lot of water in the Mojave. But, you know, I would offer to you that the, you know, the synchronization of effects across multiple domains is not something unique to any specific piece of terrain. Um, I think that's something that we tie back to this idea of the synchronization and layering of assets, you know, irrespective of kind of what domain you find them, who's responsible for those assets, have they been synchronized as part of the war game, and then has it been rehearsed as part of a combined arms rehearsal to make sure that I'm achieving the desired effect at the desired time. Um, you know, it, it all ties back to this idea of time and on the foundation, again, largely irrespective of what, you know, the scale and scope of the operation you're conducting, um, that's how, you know, how you have to kind of work through that. I think that what the CTCs really provide, and I've seen it firsthand, you and I have both seen it firsthand together in, in brigade staff, that it's an opportunity for us to be able to experiment with certain capabilities and to be able to ultimately kind of struggle through friction. In order to do it at a at a brigade level, one has to experiment and play at a battalion level. You have to grow throughout the time period as a young individual or young professional in the military, experiencing and getting a chance to do this for real Z's dough. And it's it's nice to see a place that has always been there to do that training. Yeah. I've got a question, so about the future, because emergence of digital command post systems and tactical echelons has been kind of like that thing that is that's driving me and my counterparts in the C2 doctrine community just, you know, it gives us just a little bit of angst, a little bit of heartburn. <laughs> okay. But I, I'm the first one to acknowledge that we are changing how we do digital communications. We are also, to a certain extent, automation is impacting how we do combined arms and live fire training events. What, what are you starting to see in the box as far as automated command posts, um, radio communications, other C2 systems. How is that working? Is it effective? Are we doing it well? Is it impacting how command posts function? Because command posts are where arms start to combine. I just violated the tautology rule. You did. You did. Totally did it. I saw it. Um, hey, so I'm, I'm glad you asked. You know, there, there's a lot of attention at the National Training Center right now um, on how we make command posts survivable. And a lot of that is coming out of, you know, if you study that, you know, Nagor Korobak, if you study what's going on in the Ukraine, there's a lot of concern about these, these ideas of persistent surveillance. What do I look like in the electromagnetic spectrum? You know, am, am I too close together? 
um, you know, in truth and lending, you know, I don't know that the National Training Center has the solution. Um, you know, the, the, really the value to, you know, what we provide is we see a lot of units wrestle with the solution and we, we start examining trends. And so to that end, um, you know, it's interesting to me. I remember as a Brigade XO, um, you know, having, you know, the Army was all about, you know, you must divest the expando van. And now all of a sudden um, I see everybody wrestling over trying to get more. Um, but, you know, what I would offer is, you know, we, we also see units, you know, and, and we try to um, maybe coach units into the idea of, you know, this idea, John Antall talks about masking. Now, masking in the Mojave is really hard because there's nothing else around. Um, and so, but we have these, you know, these, these different uh, urban centers. And so, you know, we'll coach with this idea about, hey, you know, maybe your, your talk isn't so much, you know, designed around the expando vans. Maybe all your talk is is a bunch of tough boxes. Now, you might set those tough boxes up with those systems inside expando vans in an austere environment where there's no city around. Uh, but we've been setting up CPs in cities um, since it, you know, time immemorial. I mean, you see in the Civil War, you know, Grant setting up his command post inside of somebody's house, right? You'll see that today, you know, if you look at where, you know, people are setting up command posts in the Ukraine, they're, they're using, you know, buildings. Now there's some, there's some give and take to that, right? You know, if you go ahead and, and uh, you know, you export your CP into a building and then you park your expando van right outside, well, you're, you're not really scratching the itch in terms of masking, right? Um, but, you know, maybe we need to break away from this idea that, you know, my talk is tense, my talk is expandos. Maybe your talk is just a series of, of you know, transportable systems that you can maybe set up in a vehicle or maybe set up in a, in a, in a building, in an in a urban environment. Um, and I, th I think that's a, that's a sea change that we're starting to see people kind of grapple with as they come through the National Training Center. Um, you know, we, we're very wedded to these ideas of they have to be mobile, they have to be survivable. Um, you know, but I think, you know, hey, is, is survivability, I need to harden up, which means I, I need armor on these things, or is survivability, I need to be mobile? Right, which means, hey, maybe every 12 hours I'm jumping. Maybe every 24 hours I'm jumping. Maybe it's it's some you know somewhere in there, in the the era of persistent surveillance that John Antel describes. You know, maybe it's I, I just can't you know my just because I have perfect communication in this one location. Um, maybe I I need to find you know a not so perfect communicating area and jump there because I've been too long in one spot. Uh, we see a lot of units sometimes that, that you know they'll take an artillery strike, and even if you know uh, it it actually hurts some people, you know, in, in a simulated casualty sort of way, they are reticent to move their command post because I, oh my my comms are just crystal clear right here. Well, great, but you know if you're taking artillery fire, somebody knows you're here, so maybe we ought not to stay here, and th and that's hard. I mean, you know, I I would be remiss if I didn't say I struggle with the same thing as a squadron commander. Um, but it's that wrestling between survivability and effectiveness um, and that teeter-totter sits somewhere in between the two. Well, and you can't, so this is absolutely crucial, you cannot combine arms without effective command and control. So 
no matter what you want to do, if you if you cannot plan, if you do not have a functioning command post, and I know everybody, I think there's still this feeling for a lot of us, it's primarily our generation or our age group that is concerned about the Tak Mahal, the giant amalgamation of huge drash tents that come into an area, have a massive digital architecture, and, and how do you... You know, do we want to divest of that? But more importantly, you can't completely get rid of a command post. I saw it on social media at one point, this discussion of can you, could we get rid of the main? You know, they were like, I don't want to do a TAC. I just want to do a TAC. And it's like, well, first of all, TAC does something different for you. The main CP absolutely is crucial because you can't plan to bring all of the capabilities of a land formation together along with joint assets and other assets that may be attached to it you can't do that without a place to physically do that work of of organizing mission analysis of executing coa dev and then ultimately analyzing it through a war game like that exists because we have a cp sure i I think the the mental model though you know that, that you've described where you and i grew up with where all of that is centralized in a spot Um, I think what commanders wrestle with now is, hey, can I spread that out? And maybe as opposed to a a command post that is a spot, you know, one dot on the map, what if it is a networked thing, Um, you know, where, you know, hey, I I have the BICE separate, I have the ALOC separate. Now, Now there's some security requirements with that, you know, that that generates other problem sets in terms of how you sustain those things. But I think one of the things that the army is wrestling with is, hey, is is that something that I can spread out in a more survivable manner where, you know, we we have the capacity to reach out and collaborate, you know, for things like mission analysis, for things like a war game. But I don't have to be, I mean, you know, we 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 do teams meetings all the time. Right. Hey, is that something that we can export into the box? Um, Truth in lending, though, I I think, you know, when I say wrestling, we are still very much wrestling Um, from a coaching perspective. What I would offer to units is I think it's important before you start stripping capabilities out of your main. I I think you have to get comfortable as a commander building all of the stuff together and starting to figure out how it works together. And that means juxtaposition, right? Like that means you have to build, you know, the four, five, eight expando vans all together, you know, just right outside each other. And then start working on the systems for how you share information between what amounts to those silos, right? You know, I'll joke around sometimes and like, you know, oh, hey, it's the expando van of excellence because information will go in there and get lost. And then does it, do we have the process to then export it out into where the commander, you know, the space that the commander is making decisions. And so I think we need to we need to get that right first before we start spreading everything out to the four winds. But as, you know, from a command perspective, once I'm comfortable, hey, this thing works and it works the way I want it to and it provides me information in the manner that I know I need to make a decision. Okay, now I can see like, okay, well, hey, if you're the S4, maybe I don't need to look at you every day. Maybe I don't need you standing in front of me, briefing me off a dry erase board. Maybe I can go ahead and take that A-lock and separate that out. You know, maybe from the, from a BICE's perspective, hey, we've developed a process to export that enemy read out of, you know, the brigade intel support, you know, echelon there. 
And like I can send that element, not echelon, um, you know, having a moment here, right? But I, maybe I can send that, like Latham's doing great at this, um, you know, but maybe I can send that someplace where I, you know, I, I don't need to look at the S2, I don't need to look at the AS2, I don't need, you know, all of that with me. Um, but, you know, before, the commander can't determine, hey, no kidding, what do I need with me so I can make a decision in that command post? What do I need to synchronize things all together until you know that you can do it all together, right? You can't start farming stuff out. Um, you know, this, this idea of attack, um, I think, you know, units will sometimes wrestle with this idea. It, there is nothing wrong with a commander wanting to go out and put their, their hands and their eyeballs on a fight. Right. That's part of the reason, like, you know, commanders get a combat platform is that sometimes that's required. They have to understand by seeing, um, you know, but the flip side to that is, you know, how how then are you then getting updated on the rest of what your staff is, you know, is doing? You know, if I'm in the fight, if I'm looking at the fight. You know, I may not be as plugged in with that log estimate, at, you know, and that for an ABCT, certainly that's going to drive a lot of decision, right, in terms of whether or not I can exploit, whether or not I, you know, am I culminating or am I not? You know, do I have to, you know, hold what I have and consolidate gains or can I keep going? Um, you know, and so there's a time to plug back into all of that, too. How do we do that? You know, um, that tack, you know, that, that's only really designed for a very discreet amount of time or a specific mission, right? You know, a great example of, of tack utilization we see, and commanders typically get this right, is they'll pack that thing to go overwatch and provide C2 of like the combined arms breach. It's a brigade level operation. You know, I've got guns and I've got aviation and I've got, you know, one, two different battalions plugged into this thing. Hey, and my tax in the right place where I can go ahead, you know, and, uh, and, and command and control through that. Right. But that's not designed for days and days and days on end. And I've got the fight here um, because what you're doing is, you know, what are you leaving? Who's not with that tech and what are you leaving behind that's not driving your decisions? Well, and ultimately like determining when an opportunity is being generated knowing how how limitations are starting to build with either sustainment or with say your intel picture when you're starting to outrun your capabilities you're no longer combining arms then you're just trying to sequence things as quickly as possible maybe you get it right maybe you don't so i've always said that you know the commander if they are the decision maker, they're a member of a crucial and critical member of the staff as well. You have to come back to a point where you're to understand whether or not you're combining arms. Like you have to go back to the other command posts at some point. Yeah, I don't know that I, I you know, I would agree that the commander is an essential member of the staff. I think his, his the the commander is responsible for making decisions, right? The staff informs that decision. So I, there, there's a nuance there, and I, and I get it. It's probably a semantic argument, right? But like, you know, I I think there's an aspect where you know the commander has to go back and then inundate himself with you know, their processed staff estimates. And, you know, we start talking about this idea of a common operating picture, right? You know, my, you know, my, my coaching mechanism for that is like, hey, all your cop is, all a common operating picture is, is an amalgamation of staff estimates, you know, shared at echelon that, you know, processed or packaged in a certain way that the commander can understand and make decisions from. 
right? Um, because, you know, again, I'm, you know, product of, you know, Massachusetts public education. So I have to make that as simple to understand as possible. Um, and that's, that's how I do it for myself. So, you know, as, as, as I lay that out, you know, the, the, you know the, the output of that is, you know, hey, one, you know, is the commander in the right place where he can, you know, again, inundate himself with those, that packaged product, you know, is that packaged product informed? And then again, it, an operating picture is great, but it's not common if it's not shared. And, you know, like shared down to battalions, laterally to adjacent units, right? Because this is the other thing that at the National Training Center, sometimes units struggle with, you know, more or less. Right, you know, you're in the middle of what is not just a brigade fight. You know, either you belong to the 52nd ID that has brigades, you know, on your flanks, and you need to pay attention to what they're doing, right? Because it's a division fight. You know, or in recent instances, like I mentioned earlier, we're bringing you know division staffs out, you know, and they're fighting a blended exercise. And like, woe be upon, you know, the brigade staff that they're like, I'm fighting my own thing, man. This is all I got. I mean, you know, hey, they, they've got to see where the rest of that division is in time and space. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't exploit that opportunity because I'm opening up a seam for my adjacent brigade. You know, or maybe, you know, I need to get a little giddy up on because I'm dragging the rest of the division behind. You know, and, and making sure that that's integrated and they can see your cop. They can see your running estimates and have a sense of what your brigade has going on. Um, wicked easy to say, right? I mean, I'm sitting here and like I feel really good talking about it, you know, but it's not easy to do. And, you know, and that's why, again, we go back to the magic of the National Training Center. It provides the unit that focused opportunity and I mean, you know, truth and light, the JRTC does the same thing. I mean, you know, CTCs are really great at running a brigade through this and making them work, you know, the way they're going to work when the fight is real. How does Black Horse do at it? Black Horse is the 11th ACR, the world-class op four that is out at NTC. And those are not platitudes. I've seen Black Horse in action it's a force to contend with, even though it is small overall in comparison with the unit that it faces once every 30 days. Yeah, the, you know, part of the value behind the National Training Center. So it's, you know, again, so I belong to Ops Group and, you know, we, you know, world-class coaches that, you know, provide a unit feedback. We deal in fact, I present the unit fact, and, and the way we structure what we do is this is what happened. Why did it happen? Right, and that's the unit telling me why do they think this happened, right? And then what are we going to do about it? Um, but NTC isn't the National Training Center without the Black Horse, uh, the finest troopers in the land. They are really, really good at what they do. Um, and specifically, I want to highlight, you know, when it comes to the basics, blocking and tackling of maneuver, uh, Black Horse has the opportunity to get really, really good at it. You know, fun fact, behind the scenes, you know, and I didn't know this, you know, in, until really I worked at the National Training Center, you know, Black Horse works through the same processes that the rotational unit does. So they will do a combined arms rehearsal. Is it good? It, it's wicked good. Uh, <laughs> it is wicked good because, again, they, they, you know, they cultivate that process. Now, what I want to offer is Black Horse fallible. Of course they are. They're human. 
things happen. They have to contend with maintenance challenges just like the RTU does. You know, they have to contend with, you know, um, small unit mistakes or things that maybe didn't go right that have repercussions for the, you know, the, the BTG in the box. You know, I mean, typically what you'll see is, is most, most RTU will outnumber um, the black horse units in the box by about, you know, two to three to one, right? Somewhere in that ratio. Um, and you'll have a squadron commander who simulates being a brigade tactical group commander um, that that brigade is fighting. And then, you know, they'll, they'll work through a battle period and then they'll kind of reset and, um, and we have a whole exercise design thing to make sure that we're achieving the RTU's training objectives. But Black Horse absolutely has to work at combining arms and they have to go through the same process that the rotational unit does. Um, and there's this, this you know, is it their home field advantage? Sure, yes, they are, they are absolutely, they live at the National Training Center. They live at Fort Irwin and, and you know, okay, hey, so there's, there's probably some benefit to that. Uh, but I think it's disingenuous to be, you know, to be like, oh, well, they're, you know, they're a training aider. Oh, hey, they, they do, you know, the same thing over and over again. They don't. They are absolutely a real unit and part of the value of a CTC, like, you know, Black Horse, Geronimo, is they provide a thinking op for, which means they do different things every rotation, you know, and, and you know, guided a little bit. But what you don't have is, you know, Black Horse, you know, wearing their white hat, listening to the RCS radio with the OCs, be like, all right, well, I'm going to stuff the unit this way. That doesn't happen. They are a completely separate entity that, you know, they have their own series of OCs. Um, and it's a free thinking fight. It's absolutely free play. And that's really the, you know, the real cool thing about the National Training Center is it gives you this look where hey, you're actually fighting somebody real who's actually trying to, you know, to get one over on you. Um, and, you know, they don't necessarily do the same thing every time and they have to work through those same processes. And so by virtue of repetition, they get really good at it. I, go ahead, sorry. I was gonna say that you can actually, it's one, key nifty side of it you can go out and see and do a ride-along with the 11th ACR typically you don't get to do it before rotation but they do invite individuals out and the nice part is you can you can observe their battle periods which they do they run the exact same process of military decision-making process followed by a very detailed rehearsal so it's it's just they do it over and over and over again. Sure. So they understand the procedure really, really well, which gets back to you you have to be able to do these things in training over and over again in order to understand how to combine arms effectively. Sure. Like that is what makes the process of doing this really hard. And like I said before, you know, it's do we have doctrine that says how to combine arms? Well, no, that's all of doctrine. Right. Yeah. That, yeah that's I mean, the trick question. That's the trick answer to the yeah, question, right? I mean, if you look, you know, if I were to do like control F search, you know, uh, doctrine combining, you know, combine arms. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's probably you're going to like, you know, you know, 18,961 times across multi a multitude of books. Um, and that's, you know, and that's awesome. But, I, you know, I, I come back to this idea. The house is just you know, a, a mental model that, you know, we, we've used in the, you know, and sometimes continue to use to, to help units visualize, you know, the order in which and how they can do that. And it's it, my, probably my favorite mental model in terms of how you package that 
uh, to help a unit understand. And, and it also it highlights that, you know, some of the importance of some of the planning process that a unit has to go through, you know, when we start talking about not just developing a, a mechanism that synchronizes a unit in all its various warfighting functions in time, but how we then validate that mechanism um, and then continue to use it. Um, and then as we start coming off of that mechanism as conditions or enemy or something votes, you know, you know, going, going back to the process of resynchronizing that mechanism to make sure that all of those warfighting functions still marry up. Well, and the more that individuals or the more that the professionals at brigade and battalion level understand the integrating processes, and that includes things like the targeting process, and it doesn't matter who you are, as we mentioned before, you know, does does the brigade aviation officer and the brigade aviation element attend the fire support rehearsal? Well, of course they should, but they should also probably be inviting things like your aviation task force, the AH-64 pilots, they should probably be attending the fire support technical rehearsal as well to understand those processes and see where they fit in the bigger picture. All of this comes back to the one thing that, that I think everybody sort of understands I, how do I say understands, it's kind of everybody intrinsically knows combining arms is good, but how do you do it? Practice. That's absolutely fair. And that, you know, again, the, the value of our CTCs where you get that repetition in, you know, a multitude of different types of operations. You know, hey, how do I utilize my reconnaissance assets? Do I have enough? Are they oriented in the right place? You know, how do I set conditions, you know, with my fires? Um, are they positioned in the right place? Do they have the right stuff? Um, you know, do I have an observer plan that supports that? Um, you know, and, and both an offense and, and, and a defense, right? And, th and this is the other thing is that, you know, we, we, we are an army that prides itself on our offensive nature. And that's awesome. Um, I love that about us. Um, but, you know, again, if we, if we take a look at, you know, Nagora Korbach and the Ukraine, I mean, the, the defense has a place in our, you know, our, our, our toolkit. You know, what kind of synchronization goes into that? And then from a brigade perspective, you know, probably the most important thing a brigade does is how do we manage transitions, right? How do, you know, and when do I need to start, you know, setting conditions for that transition? You know, my, probably my favorite example to, uh, you know, to highlight that is when we transition from an offense to a defense. At what time are the engineer CCLs moving? Who's responsible for it? Now, keep in mind, you know, my movement assets are finite. I only have so many PLSs. I only have so many five tons. You know, I only have so many assets that can move things around the battlefield. You know, so many trailers, what have you. You know, so... Am I, what am I giving up to make sure that I've got class four moving towards, you know, the, the, wherever I'm going to set that defense? And what we find sometimes is if that's not integrated into the synchronization of the plan, you know, we're going to we'll culminate or, hey, you know, we're on the objective, spike the football. Okay, we need to transition to a defense. And now it's, all right, well, I guess we got to move to class four forward. And that's an eight hour process. You know, oh, by the way, hey, you know, when do we see the enemy? Uh, when's our no later than defend time? Oh, it's, it's eight hours. Oh, no. Yeah. You know, like, ah, uh, hey, uh, 
it. Don't go that way. Oh, God. Um, you know, we, and we're, we're wrestling through that. And again, I'm, I'm making light because, you know, for comedic value, but it's, it's something units have to wrestle with. Who is managing transitions at the brigade? Who's thinking the next fight? How are we setting conditions for that next fight? And that, you know, the engineers is just an example, you know, going from the defense to the offense. Hey, I'm, I'm ready to get on the counterattack. Super. Do I have the fuel for it? Do I have the ammunition for it? You know, I mean, the, the, the counterattack isn't going to be terribly effective if I back out of my BP um, and I don't have class five uploaded. You know, how have we moved that forward? How have we set those conditions? And that's the trick for a brigade is the management of that thinking what comes next. So I leave opportunities on the table. So I'm. Um one more question in closing. And this is probably the most important question out of all of it. Sure. If I could go back to the time when Major Adam Latham was with 3-2 Striker Brigade and going and getting ready for combined arms rotations and combined arms training, what, what would you tell that young Brigade XO about this process and what they should be thinking about? That's a great question. Um, so, you know, a couple of pieces of advice that I'd give, you know, any, any field grade, any, you know, battalion level, you know, gosh, even brigade commander. So, you know, um, I, again, I, I don't want to be disingenuous is, is NTC, um, you know, an event with lots of eyes on it, you know, sure it is. Um, but it's the national training center, not the national testing center. Um, and so there's a certain aspect of, um, you know, hey, go in there. Um, you you got to leave it all on the field, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't want people thinking in that they can, you know, go, they can go into NTC and I'm going to half step because it's the training center and, you know, it'll be a great rep and no, no problem. No, you've got to go in and you've got to give it your A game, right? Um, but it's a great opportunity to go ahead and, you know, um, hey, try that thing, you know, that you you put in your SOP and, you know, hey, is that going to work? Um, a couple of things that the NTC is really good at, you know, we're really, really good at validating your SOP. Okay. So one, go in with an SOP, you know, maybe have everybody else look at it before you show up, right? If it's a brand new SOP that you show up with and nobody else has seen it, but you, and it, you just put your wet signature on an RSOI one, that's not an SOP. That's just a great idea. You haven't shared with people, right? You know, Hey, proliferate that SOP upfront. Um, hey, this is how your unit does things. Um, and then go out and try it. And here's the thing. If it doesn't go quite right, you gave it your all, you had an SOP, then as, by virtue of as you go through the AAR process, update it, tweak it. Um, you know, uh, the other thing that I, I, I'd want to tell people about the National Training Center, you know, there is no better leader development place than one of your CTCs. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing General Taylor here, but, you know, as you come out, you know, reward your soldiers, counsel your leaders, right? Hey, look at, at your platoon leader, look at your troop commander, company commander, battery commander, you know, look at your leaders as you come out and be upfront with them about, hey, this is what I think went really well for you. This is what I think you still need to work on. Um, I think there is, there is, it's important to us as a profession 
that we, you know, we, we, we are clear eyed about, hey, you know, th this is where things are going right. And you don't, I, I don't want to conflate this with, hey, you need to be a jerk. Hey, you know, this battle period went terrible. You did terrible. You all died. Bah. Like, no, 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 no. That's not where I'm going with this. You know, it's the, you know, the, the thing about the AAR, and, and again, people sometimes mistake what OCs do. I don't walk in, look at a unit and be like, you guys are all jacked up. I'd be a horrible coach if that's how I handled business. No, hey, you go in, hey, these are the facts. And if, if I were to look at, you know, a captain, you know, who's about to go to NTC or just coming out of NTC rather, you know, hey, these are the facts. Hey, this, this, your OR, you know, this is where your OR was throughout NTC. Hey, that, that's, that's an important metric because you can't fight if your stuff doesn't work, right? So, hey, let's talk about what, why is that, man? What, why was your OR whatever it was? Um, and maybe it was really good. Hey, you had a 92% OR for the duration of the box. What did you do? Let's unpack that. Let's share that lesson across the formation. Maybe you're doing something right, you know? Um, you know, and then and work that into counseling and leader development. That that's the again. You know, we talk about the beauty of your CTCs. It's a clear eye. You can't hide anything in the Mojave. You can't hide anything in Louis. You know, the jungles of Louisiana. There. You know, whatever. You know, whatever you've been stuffing under the rug, it's going to come to light. You know, use that as an opportunity to develop you know, develop your leaders, and then have a clear eyed picture going forward. Okay, hey, this is how we'll continue to develop. Right. Hey, listen, we went to the National Training Center. I had big ideas about HF or I had big ideas about tax ed. Fun fact, none of them work or none of them, you know, nobody knows how to use them. OK, well, hey, now I've got a clear picture of how I'm going to develop leaders, how I'm going to train my formation going forward. Hey, we've, we've got to work that out because it's our contingent or emergent system um, and use that as a, you know, as a stepstone, you know, that the, the CTCs aren't an end all be all. You know, they, but they, they, they provide you that substantive feedback, use it and, and, and help develop from there. Um, you know, again, people will, will tell you that like, oh, well, you know, uh, your reputation. OK, maybe. Um, but what I'm far more interested in is, you know, hey, not I'll put it to you this way. So some advice that I was given is, you know, good units can identify a problem. Great units do something about it. Right, um, NTCs or you know JRTCs, CTCs are a mechanism by which to identify problems. Great units will do something about it. So what do you you know whatever that problem is, and you'll ha everybody's going to have one, right? I mean, some you're going to have something somewhere. Maybe it's your maintenance system. Maybe it's your communication system. Maybe it's maybe it's your ability to synchronize. Awesome. Hey, we've established that we've got some work to do. Great units do something about it. And that's, that's, I think, what I would tell, you know, a younger Latham is, hey, this isn't an end-all, be-all. You're not going to win the NTC. The, you know, what you're going to do is use this as a clear-eyed optic on what you need to fix in your organization. So I think if I could go back and find, I'd start even, I'd start further back, honestly, to the, the CTCs, and this is dating myself quite a bit to CMTC when my first rotation as a young lieutenant, um, I would have become, as an aviator, infinitely more familiar with the other formations that were out there and kind of exposed myself to the doctrine. And this is something that I've, I've now started to coach individuals you know, who ask, like, what book should I read? Well, you're a platoon leader. You're a tank platoon leader. 
You need to read the Platoon Leader book about mm, sustainment. You probably should consider reading maybe the books that cover stuff like Medivac, Kazivac. Um, maybe try reading the Aviation Platoon book. Read about fire support. Uh, you should understand exactly what the FDC does within the fire's communication or the fire's process. That's the Fire Direction Center if you're unfamiliar. Those, those kinds of things of exposing yourself to what does the other branch or what do the other formations do builds a familiarity that when you need to know it later on, what does a brigade do? What does the BCT do? What does an aviation task force do? It, it starts this architecture going and it provides familiarity. Like that, that would be what I would tell her as a young lieutenant, not just do I need to know what, what Aero Scouts do? Do I need to know what tankers do in a div cav fight? I, I think that probably would have set a better architecture in place for me to learn that and to understand it later on when I'm, I'm thinking about this from a division and theater army perspective, preparing for operations in Korea. Sure. Like, it, if only if only she would listen to me, but she's too busy worried about her A part. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's, you know, I, uh, I have similar problems, um, you know, especially being the dad of teenagers. Like, you know, it doesn't matter what I say. I, I guarantee they're probably not going to listen. Yeah, that's... The, yeah, at the end of a career, it's always easier to be like, I wish I would have known this. I wouldn't have listened to myself anyways because right. can't tell me nothing. Well, so, sometimes, you know, um, you know pain is sometimes the, our best educator, right? Like, you know, and sometimes we have to, to learn through rote repetition um, because there, there are lots of people out there who's, who probably offered, you know, young Lieutenant Dean or young Lieutenant Latham advice. Um, and we promptly ignored, forgot, or, you know, just simply set that advice to the side right up until the thing that they were advising us about smacked us in the face. Um, and so there's, there's absolutely some, you know, some value to, again, you know, the CTCs, you can't hide anything in the Mojave. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're going to find it, we're going to see it, and then what do you do about it? Well... I'm glad that one thing that you did about it was to come here today and talk about the experience and some thoughts for how do we combine arms and prepare for the Black Horse and for Geronimo, and more importantly, prepare for future operations. Well, thanks so much for having me. So if you're wondering where I got my information about the history of Camp Irwin, the Mojave Anti-Aircraft Range, as it used to be known, and the Desert Training Center, I actually combined and compiled those notes from a little-known series called Why We Fight. Actually, it's not a little-known series. It's the amazing Sasha Maggio's work from uh, Building an American Army, and you can continue to follow her on Twitter. We talked about her on a previous episode. Along with the usual smattering of doctrine publications like FM5060, anything out of the 390 series of manuals, FM 396 has also provided me one of those books that I wish I would have read when I was younger. It's about the brigade combat team. Um, I went back to that and began to search through the archives to find out what exactly throughout our different brigade echelon manuals we've said about combined arms. That's where I got a lot of the information for that. When it came to forming my question for today's episode, I found several articles to be really helpful. Preventing the Collapse, Fighting Friction After First Contact at the National Training Center by Brian Shellhorn, which was published in the April, uh, I'm sorry, the March-April 2020 edition of Military Review, our journal here at the Combined Arms Center. 
I also found Seven Breaching Habits of Highly Effective Unit by Thomas Magnus, which was published in the fall edition of 2003's Engineer Journal. Combined Arms in the Cast Fight by William Francis Vesey, which was published in 2010 of May, or May of 2010, in the Airland Sea Bulletin. And if you're looking for more information about the techniques of combining arms and the lessons learned from units that have gone through the crucible of Patton's Desert Training Center, you can look at the Center for Army Lessons Learned, which provides one of the most complete repositories of papers, pamphlets, and it's all there for your perusal. Of note, the access is restricted to those with a DOD Common Access Card. Also, if you're looking for some open source curious action, there is a repository of articles and editorial discussions online with the company leader. You can search with the tagline, Lessons from Atropia. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, today for joining us. Our production was coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by the well-synchronized and always simultaneous Captain Wyatt Harper. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on either Apple or Google Podcasts for new episodes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at U.S. Army Doctrine for updates from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, as well as our Doctrine Digest videos on YouTube, audiobooks, and most importantly, new Doctrine. Few CTCs have a social media presence that competes with the National Training Center. I personally love Cobra, Bronco, and of course, the Eagle teams. But every critter team has a Twitter account that routinely shares their insights from the desert with their followers. Also, I'd like to put out a plug for The Gold Miners and their podcast, The Dirt Logistician, which is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can follow Ops Group at opsgroup underscore NTC, the CTC itself at NTC underscore update, and even the CG at NTC Lead 6. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army. U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, the Combined Arms Center, or the National Training Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean. I stand with Atropia, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.